it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Tuesday, August 9th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson, and this is the Guy Benson Show. Thank you so much for Tuning in for listening every day between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when we air. If you can't catch it live, you can get us on demand on the podcast. It's totally free. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com for the podcast. There's also FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. On social media, Twitter and Instagram, our handle is at GuyBensonShow. You can t- uh, toss us a follow there. Keep up with some extra bonus content from time to time on those feeds. Here is our lineup on the radio today. Andy McCarthy, former federal prosecutor. He will be here later this hour talking about the lead story. Chris Christie, former prosecutor at the federal level as well, also former governor of New Jersey. He will be here in the next hour talking about our lead story. Byron York of the Washington Examiner, also in that middle hour, He will also, among other things, talk about this huge story that broke late yesterday. And in our final hour, an extended conversation on a series of topics with U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican from South Carolina. His new book is out and available, America, A Redemption Story. We'll delve into that and also some of the news of the day. Let's dive right into it then. Last evening... I was getting ready to go to a concert here in Washington, D.C. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Lady Gaga was in town, and I just called my parents to say hello, and my dad picked up the phone and said, hey, are you uh, down at Mar-a-Lago? Just making a joke about Mar-a-Lago, and I had no idea what he was talking about because I had been getting ready and getting into an Uber and getting change and all of that, and I didn't even laugh because I didn't understand what he was referencing or joking about. And he said, it looks like the FBI has raided Mar-a-Lago, President Trump's sort of resort and home down in South Florida. I had no idea. So that's the first I'd heard of it. Early evening, my initial instinct reaction when I heard that the FBI had raided Mar-a-Lago was, okay, this is a seismic event in our politics. I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what is going on or why. I see the FBI and DOJ declining to comment today on the nature or context of this search. And I just knew that there was going to be an explosion on both sides of the aisle with the resistance people celebrating that this was happening without all the facts. And Trump supporters and even people beyond just core Trump supporters expressing very serious concerns, if not open outrage, about what is an unprecedented escalation. This is the FBI showing up with a warrant at the home of a former president and carting away boxes of potential evidence 
based on whatever this warrant is about. Apparently, the former president and his team have this warrant. I know there are some calls to release it, to add some or any transparency into this situation. I will ask Andy and Christie and others coming up whether they think that's a good idea. From Trump's perspective, from the country's perspective, all I can say is I am trying to keep my powder dry on this situation because I just don't know, and really very few people in the whole country have any idea what actually is going on here, what the basis for this raid is or supposedly is. It's all been very tight-lipped. We know that there's been a grand jury open on some of the January 6th stuff. The reports are that this raid had to do with presidential documents and classified materials that Trump took with him out of the White House down to Mar-a-Lago. I don't really understand why that would rise to a level, even if he was technically in violation of the law, why that would rise to the level of an FBI raid like this. Unless it is a pretext for something else or it's a tie in to another criminal investigation that is open. So without good information, I'm not going to sit here and give you piping hot takes about what this means. But I will say this. They better have the goods on Donald Trump on something very serious in order to do something like this. And we're not going to really get a clear picture of that potentially for quite a while because they're going to say, as they are, oh, this is an active investigation. We can't comment. And so I think a lot of distrust is going to fester and conspiracy theories on all sides are going to bloom and proliferate because all we have is speculation and conjecture. And you know what it reminds me a lot of? It reminds me of Russiagate. It reminds me of Crossfire Hurricane. The whole theme, the whole allegation that hung over Donald Trump's candidacy and especially his presidency for years was that he was some Russian asset in cahoots with Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin, and they colluded together to steal or influence unduly the 2016 presidential election. And we were told through leaks and cherry-picked information and sort of targeted whispering from certain sources inside the government to certain reporters, and this is a steady drumbeat for years. We were told that the walls were closing in on Donald Trump. And that there was a raging fire behind all of this smoke. And then finally, when we got the Mueller report and there was no collusion, I know some people just like wasn't good enough for them. They were so invested in that talking point, so invested in that narrative, they can't admit that they were just wrong. But there are some eerie similarities, at least in the way that this feels. And whether it applies, whether the fact patterns are remotely similar, whether the outcomes are going to be remotely similar, I don't know. Most of us have no idea. But there has been a deep break in trust and credibility at the DOJ and the FBI with many people on the right and not just Donald Trump and his inner circle. 
you think back to the questionable conduct to misconduct from guys like James Comey and Andrew McCabe, especially McCabe, who is confirmed to have lied under penalty of perjury, lied under oath multiple times, and he basically skated. There's just kind of no accountability for certain types of people with certain views, it would seem, in Washington, D.C. That has been part of the frustration felt by so many conservatives. You see McCabe showing up on other networks as now like this hired pundit, someone who should be disgraced based on what he did. Another guy from the FBI, Peter Strzok, who was biased up to his eyeballs, In the Russia investigation, I saw him a few minutes ago on CNN with a smirk on his face weighing in on this development. And a lot of people say, yeah, you know what? That's the type of person that makes me suspicious of the whole enterprise. I'm not saying that the FBI is totally corrupt. They should be disbanded or whatever. But between the FBI and the DOJ and the perception of political sort of witch hunts or imbalances or selective interest in accountability, that is real. I see Hillary Clinton put out her favorite little meme, the but her emails thing, where she always tries to pretend like her egregious misconduct, and I believe her criminal behavior, didn't matter because whatever the latest thing is with Trump. And of course, anything related to Trump does not change what she did. And in my mind, based on many interviews, I'm not a legal expert, but many of those people do agree with me. She, in a clear cut way, violated the law with her emails and her secret server and her destruction of emails and her lies about those emails, which included a lot of highly classified and sensitive information related to national security. And you see a lot of people making the point today, oh, all these right wingers suddenly are mad about this investigation into Donald Trump that apparently has to do with classified materials. That was their biggest attack line against Hillary Clinton. Look at these hypocrites. Well, guess what? We also remember what didn't happen to Hillary Clinton. There was no big dramatic raid in Chappaqua, was there? There were no indictments. I think she absolutely should have been indicted based on the evidence that we had. And Comey came out from the FBI and basically admitted, yes, she did it. Yes, it was very bad, but we're not going to indict. Maybe the perception was it's just too political. And yet here we have a full-blown raid at Mar-a-Lago. Again, we don't know the facts. I'm going to keep underscoring that, which is why I'm not taking a hardcore position until we know more. I'm just explaining why a lot of people look at this and say, this reeks to high heaven. This isn't happening in a vacuum. This is happening against a backdrop of events over the last six years. And it's impossible to separate that sort of institutional memory, that political memory from what's happening here. Maybe they have Trump on something very serious and they are in the process of gathering concrete evidence and he's going to go down. Maybe. Maybe they think that they might be able to get hard evidence of a crime that is, you know, maybe a violation of the law, but something that other people wouldn't have the screws turned on them over. But he's Donald Trump and there's something else at play. 
Is that possible? Is that plausible in my mind as a non-conspiracy person and a non-Trump guy in a lot of ways? Yeah, I think that is plausible, given what happened with Russiagate. The DOJ, the FBI, did all of this bootstrapping of a huge investigation that they were just seeding little tiny slivers and snippets to the media, keeping the story alive for years, based on the Steele dossier. That was the core basis of the whole thing, and it was a fabrication. A fabrication by a foreign former intelligence operative, elements of which were completely debunked, and crucial claims of which were unsubstantiated, uncorroborated. And by the way, that dossier was paid for by Hillary Clinton and the Democrats during the 2016 campaign. Then it just mystically, magically became the center of this huge investigation that turned out that turned up no collusion with the Russians. But that was a dark cloud hampering the Trump administration for years with the media with bated breath this breathless coverage all the time about something that turned out to just basically be nothing. And now here we go again. I would like to have more confidence in the independence of the DOJ and the FBI than I do right now. I would like to say they aren't idiots. They have to know that sending a team of, F- of FBI personnel to Mar-a-Lago to execute a search warrant and walk away with a bunch of material would be a massive event in American politics and should not be done lightly at all. It better be a really damn good reason. You would think that they would understand that reality and that they felt it was the right thing anyway, and maybe that would give you confidence, even if you were skeptical or concerned. I just think a lot of people don't have anywhere near that level of confidence. Like, is it possible that it's all above board and... Justified? Maybe. Is it borderline? Maybe. Could it be the Attorney General Merrick Garland hearing a relentless push from the left on sort of, you know, left-wing progressive Twitter and certain influencers and commentators on the left? They've been agitating for him to do more, to indict Trump. Day in and day out, the pressure's been on. And unfortunately, a lot of the governance of the Democratic Party and the, uh, the Biden administration seems to be driven by those types of voices. Is it possible that Garland allowed that to influence him? I can't imagine he didn't know about this in advance. I don't know. I don't want to accuse him of that without knowledge. Do I think it's possible? Unfortunately, yes, I do. So... There's a lot that we don't know. That is critical. That is my bottom line. Sadly, we might not know anything more that will shed meaningful light on this for a while by nature of the process. And people don't trust the protocols in the process because of the way that they've been abused recently. But this is significant. It feels like it could be one of those tipping or inflection points in our country, and I think it's perilous. I think it's a dangerous moment. And I don't want to say anything overly dramatic, fueling this whole conflagration beyond what I think is sensible. But 
yes, my antenna are up about this being a dangerous spot and wanting to know a lot more. Because just trust us isn't really going to cut it from this DOJ and this FBI at this moment in time after what we've all lived through. You might disagree with me on that, but I think that's a reality for many Americans. They're feeling exactly that or more outrage yesterday and into today. We will talk to Andy McCarthy about it. We will talk to Chris Christie about it, Byron York and more. A busy show ahead on The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. And I was talking earlier on the phone with a former senior Justice Department official who was wondering if this is about presidential records and classified materials. Because, of course, the president has the authority to declassify stuff while he's still in office or she. No one else does unilaterally. Couldn't they just have subpoenaed what they wanted? What's this raid actually about? I think there's a lot of people scratching their heads and wondering, is there something bigger afoot here? And look, if this is borderline or is going to strike reasonable people once the facts come to light about this investigation, this Mar-a-Lago raid, if it's going to strike ordinary people as overreach, there has been a huge miscalculation on the part of the DOJ and the FBI. We don't know that's the case. That's why I want to see more facts. But it's interesting. It's not just Trump and his inner circle expressing outrage about this. It is basically the entire Republican Party across the spectrum. Maybe not the Liz Cheney side, like that element. But the condemnations and expressions of deep concern from everyone from Ron DeSantis to Glenn Youngkin to Mike Pence to Marco Rubio, I mean, some of these people might have an interest in Trump getting dinged up before running for president again. They might want to beat him in a Republican primary, and yet they all see this, and there are at least red flags and alarm bells, which is why they're speaking out. This is almost across the whole spectrum of the GOP. People are unhappy. This could also fire up the Republican base even more if we want to talk about this from an electoral standpoint. Andy McCarthy is here next to break it all down. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. On a big news day, the breaking news last night that the FBI had raided Mar-a-Lago, 
down in Palm Beach, Florida, and then just the reaction pouring in, a lot of it under-informed by necessity, because we don't really know that much. We just know what happened, and you can imagine, very polarizing, very angering and concerning to a lot of people. What to make of this? Joining us now is Andy McCarthy, a Fox News contributor, a longtime federal prosecutor, also relevant, author of the book Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, good to have you here. Guy, great to be with you. All right, let's just start with your 50,000-foot view of how you're looking at this, what your analysis is, starting with when you first got word that this had happened and you had some time to sort of digest it. Yeah, I know you've written a few pieces about it. What's going on here? What do you think our listeners need to know? Well, the first thing I wanted to know, Guy, when I first heard about this was what are they reporting is the basis for uh, the search? And when they said that it had to do with uh, the Presidential Records Act and potential classified information violations, uh, it occurred to me that this was something the Justice Department has really had in its pocket since January, because there for many months uh, since after the president kind of uh, chaotically uh, decamped from the White House to Mar-a-Lago, um, there's been a dispute between the National Archives officials and President Trump and his uh, legal counsel over materials that were moved from the White House to Mar-a-Lago. And it was reported that there were uh, a number of boxes apparently in around January of 2022. uh, uh, Trump had returned 15 of the boxes. As the archives went through that stuff, they uh, found what they thought was evidence that uh, classified information uh, had been among the the items that were shipped down to Mar-a-Lago, and they referred that to the Justice Department. So it seems to me that from any time, uh, from the time that was referred to the Justice Department until now, the Justice Department could have gone to a federal court and asked for a search warrant uh, based on a probable cause that there was a classified information violation in that since they got the uh, classified information back from Mar-a-Lago. It must have been down there where it wasn't supposed to be in the first place. Moreover, since Trump didn't return everything to the archives, there was reason to believe there was other classified information there. So if they really wanted to go by warrant, they could have done that any time in the last eight months. Uh, And I just think that uh, you can't, since they picked now to do it, I don't think you can disaggregate that from the two search warrants that were served on the two lawyers, uh, Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman, who are connected to the January 6th stuff, and the fact that last week we heard that the grand jury subpoenas were issued by the Justice Department to two of the White House counsel, uh, Pat Cipollone and Patrick Philbin. It's clear that the Justice Department is ratcheting up the January 6th-based investigation on President Trump, and I think this is a pretextual search in the hope of finding evidence uh, in his premises that it's relevant. All right. So that's the key word there, a pretext where, I mean, maybe you disagree, Andy, but if this is about presidential records and classified materials, I think you'd have a bunch of people up in arms. If that's what this is, you know, only about, I put only in quotes, not to diminish the importance of it, but everyone remembers Hillary Clinton not getting prosecuted for egregious violations on that stuff. 
and she wasn't president at any point with declassification powers. And it just seems like that could be overreach. What you're suggesting is based on your experience as a prosecutor, uh, you know, with the U.S. attorney's office, you think that they've had this kind of in their back pocket as a way to get in to Mar-a-Lago in pursuit of other stuff. You know, you know, related not really to that specifically, but to this broader January 6th issue. How will we get a handle on what's actually happening here? Because Justice Department saying no comment, active investigation. So there's no transparency there. I know it's protocol, but I think there's a lot of mistrust. I think a lot of it justified among conservatives, given what we all witnessed during the Trump administration, what you wrote a whole book about, Andy. On the other hand, there's this warrant floating out there that Trump has. I've seen a number of calls for him to release that warrant. Do you think that is in the country's interest for him to do so? Is it in his best interest to do so? Well, I think um, the country's interest is always served by transparency with respect to the lawfulness of a search. Now, you have to balance that with it's, you know, typically, Guy. The only thing that's public in a search warrant in the sense of is given to the person whose premises is searched is the warrant. You don't get the underlying application. And what the Justice Department would say, the underlying application is the thing that's sworn to by an FBI agent that lays out the probable cause for the search. Uh, And you don't get that because it's an ongoing investigation. And if they released it, it might compromise, uh, you know, sources. Uh, who are giving them information. It might tip off people who are under investigation about what the Justice Department is looking at and so on. So they always they always keep that under seal with the court um, until a case is brought. And then at that point, it's, uh, it's unsealed and it has to be turned over to the defense uh, in connection with the, the prosecution. But Trump does have the warrant. And I think if he thought it was in his interest, to, there's nothing prevents him from putting it out. Um, so I, I guess if he, you know, if he thought it was in his interest, he could do that. And we would have a little bit more clarity about exactly what it is that they were looking for. But we wouldn't know the underlying factual claims that they made to the court. We've also heard people saying this is such an explosive decision by the DOJ and the FBI that they owe us some sort of explanation. And that they should, even if they're not going to reveal everything, they should come forward and give us something, uh, given the, the political nature of this, the high stakes anger about it, the mistrust that I mentioned that built up over a number of years surrounding Donald Trump and, and other political figures as well. Other people say, nope, they violated protocol in the past and it didn't really help matters at all. They shouldn't violate protocol here. It could only make things worse. I mean, I see both sides of this because I really want more information. I don't really have a strong, hardcore viewpoint on this because I just don't know enough. And I understand sometimes you can't really reveal stuff to the public if you're engaged in an active investigation. But I also don't have any sort of implicit trust of this DOJ or the FBI given the events of the last few years, Andy. And I think that is a reality that a lot of people are feeling very acutely today. What do you make of that? I think, Guy, that the FBI has forfeited over the last eight years its longstanding 
capacity to look us in the eye and say, just trust us, we're, we're going to do the right thing, because they've too often not done the right thing. So a level of uh, mistrust and skepticism is warranted because they've earned it. Um, and I also think there is a middle path here. I mean, you know, this idea that uh, they're going to continue to say, we can't tell you anything, and everybody else is going to say, you must give us everything, including the warrant. I'd like to know a few things up front. Like, for example, it's unusual to go from a situation where you're negotiating, where, like, for example, Trump's lawyers and the National Archives lawyers are negotiating over what's going to be turned over. And all of a sudden, the Justice Department goes to DEFCON 5 with a search warrant when they could have, for example, called up Trump's lawyers and said, we're now giving you a grand jury subpoena. Here are the items that you need to surrender. They didn't do that. So I'd like to know. Why didn't they do that? You don't have to tell me everything that's in the warrant. You don't have to tell me about the sources. You don't have to tell me even everything that's investigating. But I'd certainly like to know why you suddenly decided that Trump was so untrustworthy, that there was such a high probability that he would destroy evidence or tip off other people who were under investigation or whatever you think he would do, uh, that suddenly you decided you had to do the most intrusive thing the Justice Department does to get evidence when you're dealing with a situation where we're talking about a former president of the United States and a statute that they typically don't prosecute. Right. And haven't prosecuted when there's other people on the other side of the political aisle in very recent memory. When they were in violation, we famously did not see prosecutions. I'm thinking, of course, of Hillary Clinton first and foremost. The Biden White House saying today they have no comment. They did not know about this until it happened. They had no foreknowledge whatsoever of this raid. Do you believe that? I don't I don't pretend to have a good understanding, Guy, of what the relationship is between uh, Attorney General Garland and the president. I think that, you know, it seems to be that Biden has uh, given him like a wide berth of responsibilities, and at the same time, Garland knows what's expected of him. I also think Biden has a constitutionally illiterate idea if he believes what he says publicly, which is is another question, uh, a constitutionally illiterate idea of how the Justice Department works. The idea that the attorneys of the Justice Department don't work for the chief executive, but they work for the law is nonsense. The, you know, the way the Constitution has set up our system, uh, executive power is what you need to conduct investigation. The only person in this government who has executive power is the president. So they, whether he likes it or not, the Justice Department reports to him. And I, I know all I could say is if I were president, I would certainly want a heads up from the attorney general if a former president of the United States was going to be subjected to uh, a search. And I wouldn't want political control of the Justice Department, but I would ask the attorney general, you know, you sure you need to do a search warrant here? Yeah. And I know that the White House today, Corinne Jean-Pierre saying, well, they don't want to comment on an active investigation. The president won't do that. Of course, he has done that on other hot-button controversies and issues. He commented at the beginning of an investigation into the border agents, for example, falsely accused of whipping migrants. He prejudiced that investigation from the very beginning. Uh, This is obviously on another level in terms of uh, political ramifications, but he's done it in the past. It's probably the better part uh, of, of valor to stay away from this one and not comment on it, given how combustible all of this uh, this is. But 
implicit, Andy, in your answer there on the White House and Biden is that Merrick Garland, the attorney general, must have known about this, right? This type of thing doesn't happen. The former president's house getting raided by the FBI, that doesn't happen without the knowledge and approval of the attorney general, does it? Guy, if it did, we got a bigger problem even than a search of a former president's residence. I mean, if the uh, if the lunatics are running the asylum without any supervision and they feel like they could do something like this without uh, getting a green light from the attorney general, I think we have a big, big problem. You've got a rogue Justice Department then. I have to assume that Attorney General Garland knew about this and approved it, and I have to even leave open the possibility that uh, because he's not a dumb guy, uh, he knows things that I don't know, and maybe he's got reasons that if he could tell me what the reasons were, he would he would at least make me think there might have been a good reason to do this by search warrant. But I have to believe he knew, uh, and if he doesn't want to tell us why they did it, then I think you know the Justice Department, to my mind, like the FBI, has forfeited over the last number of years the – the any expectation on their part that they can just look us in the eye and say, hey, guys, you can trust us. We're only going to do. Yeah, the benefit of the doubt. It's just it's just gone, which is why, Andy, you know, I think about this. People are making the argument they wouldn't have taken this dramatic and draconian a step without really good reason. And they had to have known there would have been a big uproar over this and they did it anyway. And that, you know, should mean something. And maybe a few years ago, that logic would play out in my mind and say that makes sense to me. But based on the last couple of years and Crossfire Hurricane, for example, I am not immediately inclined to buy that argument. And that's a problem on their end, not on my end. Yeah, but Guy, look, I, I think you and I talked about this a number of times. I may even have told you at, at the early stages when we talked about this that I don't believe – the FBI and the Justice Department would ever pretextually use FISA to investigate a presidential candidate who they didn't have enough evidence to investigate for a criminal law violation. I, I would tell any number of people at that time uh, I did not believe that's something the FBI would ever do or that the Justice Department would ever do, and then it turned out they did it. So I'm having had egg all over my face once before. I'm done with that. Uh, I'm not taking their word for anything. And if they don't want to speak publicly, I think they have to just deal with the fact that um, they don't get the benefit of the doubt. Very quickly, Andy, to me, there's sort of three realms of possibility here. Number one, there's something extremely serious and real that Trump would deserve to go down for. Number two, there's something maybe marginal of lawbreaking, and you could argue one way or the other, is this overreach, is this necessary? Or option three is it's just you know politicized all the way down. I don't really know which one of those is the truth. What do you think of, of that sort of way that I'm coming at this quickly? I think that this is the same thing, Guy, as the search warrants on Jeffrey Clark and John Eastman over, what is it, six weeks ago? Now, you know, you, you can't get a search warrant unless you have probable cause of a crime. And they didn't arrest those guys. They just, you know, they searched Clark's house. They braced uh, Eastman and took his uh, cell phone. They're trying to project that they have an energetic January 6th investigation 
underway because I think they're getting a lot of heat from the Democratic base. And they are indeed trying to make a case. I just don't know that they'll ever be able to make the case. Well, and the genie is now out of the bottle. The toothpaste is out of the tube. I mean, this is a Rubicon, you know, with with a raid of the FBI at Mar-a-Lago. It's, it's not a small thing. It's a big thing. We'll be watching it closely. Andy McCarthy will be as well, former federal prosecutor and Fox News contributor. Andy, thank you. Thanks, Guy. Back with The Guy Benson Show continuing after this short break. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Still to come on The Guy Benson Show, Governor Chris Christie, who was a federal prosecutor, Byron York, U.S. Senator Tim Scott, and more upcoming. Quickly here, a story from Politico. We can call this the midterm watch or the wave watch. GOP polls show House battlefields stretching into double-digit Biden districts. A round of new internal polling is giving the GOP fresh optimism that the House battle, uh, battleground map is stretching even more favorably in their direction. Four surveys conducted in late July reveal close races in open seats in Oregon, Colorado, and California that President Joe Biden carried by between 12 or 11 and 15 points back in 2020. Taken together, GOP operatives view the data as a sign that Biden's sinking approval numbers could drag Democratic candidates down enough to bring deep blue turf into reach. And they say, look, it's an internal poll or a series of internal polls from Republicans, so take it with a grain of salt. But the numbers, quote, comport with general assessments about the state of the House map from strategists of both parties. So these are Biden plus 12 to 15 districts where Republicans are ahead or in striking distance. I mean, you can do the math elsewhere in the map as well. So the midterms could be pretty punishing for the Democrats. Following it here on The Guy Benson Show, another hour coming up. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. Here we are in a new hour of the Guy Benson Show, our second out of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. Thank you for listening. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free on demand every day. You can follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show on Twitter and on Instagram. Hope you'll do that. In the meantime, here's a Fox News alert as we get going this hour. The Dow closes down 58 points today, so ending in the red at 32,774. We continue now with our coverage of this extraordinary development yesterday. President Trump, the former president, revealing that the FBI had raided his home, his club, his resort, Mar-a-Lago, and executing a search warrant. And reports are that they, the FBI agents, left the property with boxes of material. What does it mean? Of course, there's been a huge outburst of commentary about this from... People across the spectrum and Republicans, for the most part, are outraged. Democrats are either giddy or tight lipped. Chuck Schumer was on with Rachel Maddow and he was uncharacteristically quiet and not willing to talk about that, which is not very much like him. 
Joining us now to continue in the analysis department is Chris Christie, former governor of New Jersey, also a former federal prosecutor, author of the book Republican Rescue. Governor, good to have you here as always. Thank you, Guy. Good to be here. All right. What was your initial reaction? I mean, you heard about this. There's a it's, you know, a thunderbolt in American politics that this happened. What went through your mind? And now here we are the next day. Where is your thought process sort of settling on this? Well, first off, it is an extraordinary move by the Justice Department to execute a search warrant on the home of a former president. So let's start there. There's no question about that, that it's an extraordinary action to take. Um, But, Guy, you know, I always go back to my training and my experience as a federal prosecutor to try to analyze this. I have a hard time believing, given my experience, that the only thing that they executed that search warrant for was some violation of Presidential Records Act. If that's the case, then it is a complete overreach by the government. But what I also know is that in seven years when I was U.S. attorney doing a lot of high-profile political corruption cases, people would draw certain assumptions and fill in blanks when they had no factual basis to be able to do it. And only we knew what we knew when we were doing an investigation, if we were doing our job the right way and not leaking information. And so in this instance, it seems pretty clear information was not leaked. This was done very quietly and, and, and professionally. And now we have to see. And what people have to keep in mind is that the whole key to determining DOJ's actions here is for us to see the search warrant affidavit. Because that will, con- that will contain all of the evidence that they say created probable cause to be able to do the search warrant. Secondly, we need to remember that this was signed off on by a federal judge as well. And this is not some minor you know, search warrant application. I have to believe a federal judge paid pretty strict attention uh, to what was going on and what was being said in that affidavit. Um, third, I think it's important to note, too, I've seen so much today about the FBI. I would tell you that I think the FBI is the number three player in this in this decision-making tree. The FBI only does two things in this instance. Gather facts to provide the prosecutors to determine whether a search warrant is, is merited, and two, then execute the search warrant. But the decisions about whether the evidence is enough to, to merit a search warrant are left in the first case to the U.S. attorney, and I'm confident in this case, the deputy attorney general and the attorney general of the United States, and then to a a federal district court judge in the District of Columbia. And so all this stuff today about the FBI needs to explain all these things, that's, in my view, wrong. It is the Department of Justice leadership that needs to explain what they've done, the attorney general, the deputy attorney general, and they're the ones who made all the decisions. The FBI are the functionaries of what gets done. The decision makers are the prosecutors. Do you think the warrant or the warrant affidavit that led to the warrant, should that be released to the public now? I think they have to release it as absolutely as soon as possible. Um, and and, and I because I think that what will happen if they don't, Guy, is that others who don't know will fill in the blanks with speculation. That's already happening. Right. 
and it will just get worse and worse. And so, you know, this is why I had a rule guy when I was U.S. attorney. If my prosecutors wanted a search warrant um, to be executed on a high-ranking political figure or high-profile public figure, my rule to them was before you execute the search warrant, you better already have enough evidence to indict them. Because I am not going to execute a search warrant and have the ramifications that that will have on someone's reputation if we're not already have enough evidence to charge them. The search warrant results better be the icing on the cake, not the cake. Because if you turn up not what you expected in the search warrant, then you've impugned someone's reputation by just doing the search. And that toothpaste can never be put back in the tube. We've got to remember, too, that the, the former president, Donald Trump, is presumed innocent here. And people should not, on the other side, be jumping to any conclusions about just because a search was conducted, that somehow that means that he is absolutely guilty of some crime. Well, and that's, so, that's the issue here, right? Because it's impossible for me, at least, to separate my analysis of this from what we all remember from Operation Crossfire Hurricane and the Russia stuff that was – I think a real abuse of power over the course of years, drip, 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 leaks to the media, all this speculation and conjecture that they they finally were going to get Trump and they were just, you know, nailing down the final pieces of the case. And then the crux of the case, which was collusion with Russia, turned out not to be real. It was that was sort of made up and it was based on this steel dossier that was uncorroborated, partially debunked. Uh, and not a serious document, but that made it all the way up into, you know, FISA courts and warrants being signed off on and, you know, spying on certain figures connected to a presidential campaign. I think it's hard to separate those memories out from what's happening here. I'm not saying that it's going to be a repeat of what happened last time, but again, I, I think we were talking to Andy McCarthy last hour, the benefit of the doubt for the DOJ and FBI in this, I, I think, is basically gone. For a lot of Americans, and I think that's one of the realities as we cover this story that needs to be taken into account. Uh, do you agree? I do, <clears throat> and I don't think that they deserve the benefit of the doubt based upon what happened in the Mueller investigation. Now, what I'll also say to you is that I always have much more confidence in the way a U.S. Attorney's Office will run one of these investigations than I do a special counsel's office. I, I think these special counsels should be done away with. I think it is. And I think the Mueller thing showed that what it does is encourage an abuse of power by people who are only holding this power temporarily and who have an agenda. They get brought in because people are presuming something wrong was done. In the instance we're talking about now, this is a norm, what appears to be a normal federal Department of Justice investigation and being conducted in the normal way those investigations are conducted. We haven't seen leaks. We haven't seen the type of stuff we saw in the Mueller investigation thus far in this one. But the problem is because the Mueller investigation existed, by the way, under a Republican attorney general, under Donald Trump's attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and his deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, this Justice Department under you know Merrick Garland and Lisa Monaco don't get the benefit of the doubt. They don't. And that's why I think it's important, as I said before, for them to reveal what they need to reveal as soon as possible, because people do have doubts now about the Justice Department in a way that they certainly never did in the Bush 43 administration. Um, but since the Obama administration, through the Trump administration, and now 
in the Biden administration, the public does have doubts about the impartiality. No, reasonable doubts. Yep. Yep. I, I ran through a couple of the examples last hour. You know, a guy like Andy McCabe, who lied under oath multiple times, he escaped any real responsibility. Hillary Clinton, if we're talking about the maintenance of records and the protecting of classified materials, she absolutely broke the law, but they decided it wasn't really bad enough to indict her. So they said she was very, very naughty, very bad, but we're not going to indict her, which seemed like a political decision. Now you have this, and they're at least on the surface, the the rumor or the reports are that it's related to presidential records. I know that you and Andy McCarthy agree that there's something more to this, but I think a lot of people look back at that and say, okay, what is the standard for justice and accountability in this country? Are the rules evenly applied to people? If not, that really pisses people off, Governor. You understand that. What in your mind would rise to the level of a crime, a severity potentially here, that would warrant such an extraordinary action and escalation and sort of this earthquake in our politics to actually raid the house of a former president? Because to me, even like a debatable mid-level thing would probably strike a lot of people, to use your word, as overreach. What wouldn't be overreach here? Well, look, it's hard to speculate on that because, you know, the presidency touches so many things, Guy, so many sensitive areas and topics that I think it's hard to do that. I think certainly anything that involves our national security would have to be something that would be taken very seriously. But look, in the end, I'd rather end where I started, which is there better be something more than just presidential records, because if that's the case, it seems to me there are a number of other ways you could. Now, it's not to minimize the fact, by the way, that you shouldn't be doing that stuff, that you Agreed. shouldn't be taking records out. Right. I mean, but I think there could have been other investigative steps that, and, and legal steps that could have been taken short of a, of a uh, search warrant that um, could have gotten you the result of getting you the documents back in a way that, you know, is important. The other thing we don't know, Guy, is, you know, and now I'm getting into speculation, but in normal cases, you know, when you're kind of looking at something quizzically and can't figure it out, it doesn't look necessarily right. Often that means there are cooperating witnesses involved who are giving information that no one in the public yet knows. Yeah, and, and that's that look. Well, that's totally possible, and you know we're here. We are doing speculation, but that's all we can do because it's a black box. And as long as it remains a black box, and they're saying, "Oh no, you know, active investigation, we can't tell you anything." The more this type of stuff is going to circulate and spread and seep into the consciousness collectively of a lot of Americans, and you can't really unring that bell. Which is why I understand some of the sensitivities here, but you've got to give us, I think, something to go off of some actual facts which right now we really don't have chris christie former governor of new jersey former prosecutor on the guy benson show governor thank you we'll be right back i'm guy benson we're back here on the guy benson show have you heard about these dark brandon memes this might take a while to explain let me try to do it succinctly you're familiar with the let's go brandon chant or that slogan, which is a spinoff of what people were actually chanting about Joe Biden after a NASCAR race, I believe it was. So let's go. Brandon became sort of the stand in for that. It became a slogan on the right, especially sort of in MAGA world. And now with Joe Biden, the media tells us on a winning streak with all these 
democratic achievements, they frame it that way. We talked about why that's, I think, very misleading on the show yesterday, but this is what they're hyping. Right? They want to write the story. They want to tell the story that the Democrats are on the comeback trail and that this Republican layup in the midterm elections is now in danger. And I would say, just for conservative voters out there who are listening, don't take anything for granted. The media is going to do absolutely everything to try to make a red wave less significant than it otherwise would be. And so Republicans and conservatives must remain engaged and fired up and intense to go make a change happen, to go move this country in a different direction at the ballot box in November. I'm not taking anything away from that. But you can just almost sense the press trying to will this comeback tale into existence, even if it's partially inaccurate, partially misleading, partially wishful thinking. They're just trying to cobble it together. They've got some stuff to work with. It's not completely made up. But with these wins getting racked up, and a lot of the wins are just bipartisan votes that Republicans are on board for, some of Biden's supporters, including, I think, in his own administration, they are trying to get this meme going called Dark Brandon, where they're trying to sort of own the epithet. Right? They're going to appropriate the Brandon thing for themselves and turn it into this thing where he's got this smile on his face. They've got these photoshops where it's Joe Biden with like lasers shooting out of his eyes. Like he's out there, this mythical figure destroying his enemies and winning all these victories for the country and for the Democrats or whatever. Like, here's badass Joe, dark Brandon, having his revenge, the political avenger against the right or whatever. They're trying to make this happen. I think some of it is kind of cringe. And then you take the idea, the notion, sort of the spirit of dark Brandon, and then you juxtapose it and put it side by side with some of the actual clips of actual Joe Biden, not dark Brandon, but just Joe Biden. And it doesn't really quite fit. Have you seen the video of Biden getting off of Marine One and having a very difficult wrestling match with his sport coat, his jacket? It was dark Brandon against the sport coat. And doggone it, that sport coat at least struggled to a draw against the president of the United States. Even with Jill Biden, uh, excuse me, Dr. Jill Biden coming to the rescue, it was still just uncomfortable. Then he drops his sunglasses. It was just sort of like this comedy of errors, like Mr. Bean, if you've ever seen that. He just kind of came across that way. The two soldiers standing there were stone-faced, to their credit, because it was hilarious. And they did not crack a smile. I did. It's not even about making fun of a guy who's looking old. He just looks all tangled up, and it's kind of a mess. And I saw that video. I'm like, oh, is, is this one of these dark Brandon memes I've been hearing so much about? It just doesn't really work. There's no laser beams coming out of the guy's eyes with this secret brilliant plan that's suddenly working. That's not really a thing when he still just can't really perform basic functions and deliver even short speeches in any kind of efficient or convincing way. So maybe they're trying to get this bandwagon rolling and help that change the narrative, so to speak. But ultimately, it comes down to what this guy 
can do, what his abilities are and what the outcomes are for the country. And overall, I think that matrix is still looking much more dark days for America than dark Brandon. That's just kind of my casual observation from where I sit here. In the host chair at the Guy Benson Show, we'll take a break. We'll come right back. Byron York is here next on a whole bunch of topics from the Mar-a-Lago raid to immigration to the IRS expansion from the Democrats. A lot to get to with Byron. Can we call him Dark Byron? Maybe we'll ask him. It's next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. Halfway through today's show, it's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for being here. GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is free of charge at your fingertips every day when the show is over. Joining us now is Byron York, chief political correspondent at the Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor and author of the book Obsession, Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump, a book title that seems perhaps especially relevant here today. Byron, welcome back to the show. You know, I wondered if that title will get a little old, but it has not yet. Let's just say that. And it might not for a while if he's running for president again. So let's just start with this Mar-a-Lago raid. We've talked about it with a number of our guests already today. It's been a focus on the show. But I know you have plenty of thoughts. How are you coming at this issue, which has really blown up into a huge firestorm? Well, the first thing, thing, the thing I think is most important is we're all talking about this in the absence of facts, and right. we need information about this. We need the um, the warrant to be released. I do believe that President Trump or his representatives has that, and I think they should release it immediately. Uh, we really need the underlying affidavit for the warrant. The warrant is generally a piece of paper that says, you know, officers have the authority to uh, search this place for this thing at this time. Uh, and it's based on the information which is outlined in Affidavit 1. You know, but So you need to see the affidavit, see the reason why they did it. We need actual facts. Beyond that, we just – all we know is that this is totally unprecedented. Um, it seems bizarre to me – I mean beyond bizarre to me – that the FBI would conduct an unprecedented raid like this over a violation of the Presidential Records Act. I mean, it it just does not compute for me. Um, We have been hearing for a long time about how the Justice Department was investigating January 6th, was investigating Trump on January 6th. There's a grand jury in Washington. Uh, Pat Cipollone, some other top officials have been called to testify, and then bang, there's a raid on Mar-a-Lago. Certainly seems connected. Um, but no one's actually made that connection yet. So all of this is speculation done in the absence of facts. So the first thing is get facts. And how many facts can we get, though, if it's an active, open investigation? That's, I think, part of the issue here, right? Because they might say correctly that protocol demands that they not give us transparency in the middle of an active investigation, but given some of the other problems and, I would say, gaps in credibility and trust that have opened up in recent years, for good reason in a lot of cases, there is not a willingness on the part of almost anyone right of center to just take the FBI and DOJ's word for it. So you're kind of at this stalemate, and I don't really know how you break through that, absent your suggestion, at least part of the puzzle, being maybe Trump 
releasing this warrant, although, again, that would only be potentially a small piece of a wider picture that we might not know about for a very long time. And I think all this stuff would just sort of simmer and boil away in the meantime, which I don't know if it's avoidable, but it doesn't seem healthy either. It's not. But that is a start, though. I mean, releasing the warrant is a start. Also, there are people at Mar-a-Lago. Um, they, they have an idea of, of what the FBI took, what they left, what they did. We need to find that out. Uh, we, can, we can learn that. Um, and then we will have a situation in which the FBI did an unprecedented raid uh, on the president, former president, and they won't say why they did it. Uh, so I, I think that looks terrible. Uh, politically, uh, obviously, Republicans are in the minority in both House and Senate, but still the uh, ranking Republicans on the two Judiciary Committees, Charles Grassley and Jim Jordan, should clearly be pushing the Justice Department to explain itself in this situation. The, the problem with the absence of facts is it leads to wild, wild speculation. That's what happened yep. for two years in the Trump-Russia matter, yep. so that little bits of information would be leaked, and then all of a sudden there are allegedly responsible voices talking about how the president of the United States was a Russian asset. This was crazy, and that's what happens in the absence of facts, and if you've been seeing any cable television this morning, CNN, MSNBC, there's a lot of crazy talk going on because people are they're very excited. They think that finally, finally the walls are, are, are closing in on Trump, and they don't have any facts. Yeah, I think that's a good word of caution for everyone across the spectrum on this. But I understand why people are concerned as well. And we're going to try to continue to stick to and follow the facts here. Meanwhile, relatedly, sort of, Byron, if we're on the subject of potential government abuses, certainly intrusive government power, this FBI raid comes on the heels of the IRS debate in Washington Buried within this bill that the Democrats have passed out of the Senate on a 51-50 vote, Harris breaking the tie, is this giant expansion of the IRS. We addressed that at length on the show yesterday. The Democrats seem to be saying, you know, just cool it. It's not that big of a deal. It's not going to affect you. And if you're a law-abiding, honest person anyway, you have nothing to fear. I feel like this could be a very significant fault line ahead of the elections because – I just get the sense, Byron, that the American people viscerally aren't thrilled with the idea of a supercharged IRS on steroids uh, that has been doubled in size with all these new tens of thousands of agents that are coming. And the Democrats' assurances, I think, are probably going to be pretty empty, especially if the Republicans prosecute this issue correctly from a political sense. Yeah, a lot of people think not without reason that the, uh, the IRS will come after them. The uh, Democrats are trying to say that the, this will only affect, quote, wealthy tax cheats. But we all know, we all know the money is in the great middle class of the United States, and they, they're not enough billionaires to to audit, uh, to get the kind of money Democrats hope to get from this. Um, listen, Democrats have long said that Republicans have starved the IRS, that it needs more money. Let's assume that's true. How much money does it need? As it happened, this uh, this uh, provision that's in the, quote, uh, Inflation Reduction Act was also in the Build Back Better bill earlier that failed. 
And there was a lot of discussion about it last year. New York Times asked John Koskinen, who was the um, head of the IRS under Obama and under Trump, okay, well, you, you often complain the IRS needed more money. How much would you say it needs? And he says, well, probably about $25 million. Of course, the, what the Democrats were doing was $80 million. And he said, that seems Billion. like too much. Eighty, excuse me, eighty billion dollars. Said, and he said, you know, that seems like too much. So clearly, the IRS has about ninety-three thousand employees, and Democrats are proposing to add on top of that eighty-seven thousand more employees. Um, this is this is crazy. This is money rattling around in search of a purpose, and Americans are rightly suspicious of a situation like that. Yeah, we talked about the Koskinen quote yesterday on the show. Here's the biggest cheerleader I can remember in my lifetime for increasing funding to the IRS, and he wanted $25 billion, and the Democrats said, let's triple that and then some. How about that? And even he was saying, whoa, that seems like way too much. We probably can't responsibly or effectively or efficiently spend that money, but it's coming anyway into the coffers of the IRS if and when the Democrats pass this bill out of the House and Joe Biden, the president, signs it into law. That is expected to happen, and I think that is just one of several potent lines of attack coming the direction of Democrats who vote for this thing. Byron, I want to talk a bit about immigration. I promised on the show yesterday that we were going to get to it today. I will have more thoughts later in the week on some of the border crisis battles happening politically right now. But two developments that I wanted to get your analysis on. Number one, the administration has sort of formally announced, yes, the remain in Mexico policy is going away. They were trying to end it It was fought over in court, went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court sided with the Biden administration, and now they are taking that successful Trump-era policy, and they are formally doing away with it. That's number one. Number two, the Title 42 deportations or sending people back to Mexico or other countries, those have trickled down to almost a full stop. And Congressman Tony Gonzalez from Texas He was tweeting about how, in his mind, on a de facto basis, Title 42 is also being ended by the Biden administration, although technically it's still active. They just aren't using it in those removals anymore on any large scale. You put those two developments together, and that's a very significant series of developments, Byron, when it comes to the border and an immigration crisis that was already really bad. And it feels like these two things will only make it worse. Yeah. In, in, in the, the Biden administration said they were going to end Title 42, uh, and then they got a lot of pushback, and then they kind of kicked the can down the road a bit. But they're going to do it, and they've just effectively done it now, kind of cynically done it by not saying that they're uh, actually doing it. Now, as far as remaining in Mexico is concerned, I do believe the president has the authority to end remain in Mexico, just as I believe Trump had the executive authority to do a number of things yep. um, that were challenged by courts during his time in the in the White House. Um, but, you know, you read these stories about um, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, sending busload after busload of illegal border crossers into um, Washington, D.C., and now into New York City. And so many of these people came uh, with probably questionable claims of asylum, and they're being allowed to stay because the um, the Biden administration has gotten rid of remain in Mexico, which was a um, which was a policy that allowed 
the United States to evaluate the asylum claims of people without essentially giving them de facto you know, residency into the United States. And what's happening now is that a large percentage of people who cross illegally into the United States are being allowed to stay. They don't have a green card, but they know that once they're in, it's really hard to to get rid of them. They're moving throughout the country. The government well, and they're also the Biden administration, the Byron, is also explicitly limiting deportations to very few circumstances. So, I mean, the whole brew of incentives is right there. It's not subtle. and People are responding to it. I mean, the illegal immigrants are doing a rational thing in response to, in my mind, an irrational and very dangerous immigration policy from this administration. Absolutely. The, the incentive is clear, and it's been clear. By the way, I mean, the, the 2020 Democratic presidential primary campaign was a bidding war in which each of the candidates, Joe Biden included, sort of uh, bid that they would do more to open the border than the others. And so Biden is elected, and, and he's doing this. And the incentive began on day one of the administration. It continues. If you believe it's, it's, a, it's a costly and arduous and dangerous journey overland to the U.S.-Mexico border, but if you get there, you'll be allowed to stay. Uh, That's a huge incentive, and that's why so many people are doing it. Lastly, Byron, on this topic, it's a political question. You've seen some of these vulnerable Democrats in the Senate and in the House talking about Title 42 and not wanting to end Title 42, which is sort of the emergency power to repel certain illegal immigrants and and send them back in short order, these removals under public health auspices. And it's at least one of the tools that's left. Not many are left in the arsenal to get a handle on the problem. The Biden people want to get rid of it. They're under very intense pressure from the activist left to do so. But some of these Democrats who are up for tough reelection fights, they're at least making noises about how they're uncomfortable with that or putting out press releases saying, oh, not so fast on Title 42, trying to at least make it seem like there's some daylight between themselves and the unpopular Biden administration policy. They were all in the Senate given an opportunity in this Voterama amendment storm over the weekend. They were all given the chance to vote in favor of keeping Title 42 in place, and they all voted no. I mean, right, they they can talk about independence from Biden all they want. But ultimately, when the chips are down and the voting happens, these folks are with Joe Biden basically every single step of the way. I think that has to be a huge part of the individual messaging strategy against the Warnocks and Kellys and Hassans and Cortez Mastos and Bennett's of the world over the next three plus months. Yeah, I I think I think it is, which is, you know, no matter what they say, no matter what they talk about uh, being independent, the fact is they're going to vote with Joe Biden, and they're going to vote with the activist Democratic base. I mean, that's who's really pushing this. I mean, clearly, I, do I think Joe Biden has any deep, long-felt uh, feelings about immigration or remain in Mexico? No, I don't think he does. He's doing this. The, the Democratic base, the people who elected him, want this. There's a lot of pressure for this. Uh, at one time, they believed it was a great electoral strategy and that uh, a rising Hispanic population would help Democrats remain in charge of the White House from now on, as in forever. Um, and I, I, the base wants this, and politicians respond to the base. 
Yeah, although Hispanic voters have had something to say about the theory that you just mentioned, and it hasn't been going the way, I think, at least for the moment, how Democrats planned. Uh, And we'll be watching that closely heading into November. Byron York, chief political correspondent at The Washington Examiner, a Fox News contributor, and his book is Obsession Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump. Byron, appreciate it. Thank you, Guy. We'll be right back on The Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk, Guy Benson Show. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show. Story in the Wall Street Journal today, Biden's schedule heavy on Delaware, light on press interviews and golf. The president's had more personal travel and fewer formal interviews than Donald Trump or Barack Obama. I mean, this is not exactly news to any of us. But the journal keeping track of it. President Biden's schedule shows he has a fondness for travel to Delaware and the occasional game of golf and a cautious approach to formal interviews and press conferences. I think that is putting it nicely. That's sort of a euphemism, a cautious approach. He doesn't do a lot of it. I think for reasons that are apparent to many of us. He does not thrive in those settings There are a lot of questions that he doesn't want to answer, especially with drill downs and follow ups. There aren't good answers. Unfortunately for him, a lot of the people that he's got speaking on his behalf aren't good either. They're not talented. And some of that has to do with what they're working with. It's just like not a lot of good stuff, whether it's the press secretary or the vice president. I know a lot of media are excitedly hyping this narrative about the Biden comeback and how amazing it's been and all this stuff that they're doing. Well, his approval rating is still bad. Sub 40 percent, including in a brand new poll that we talked about briefly yesterday from ABC News. He's in the 30s and just sucking wind on the economy, on inflation, especially people are not happy with his job performance. And he is spending a lot of his time away from work. He's been to the beach in Delaware 46 times, Camp David 18 times. He has only conducted 17 formal press conferences, and 20 sit-down interviews with the media. That's it over the course of this entire presidency so far. I know that the basement strategy was successful for him as a candidate, given that moment in time, given who he was up against, sucking up all the oxygen, which benefited Biden, given the pandemic where there were excuses not really to go out and campaign. But Biden, to a large extent, is kind of trying to replicate that as president, a beach and basement presidency. And it's not working well for the American people. It's not working well for him politically. But I guess they've decided that it's still the best shot that they have. It would be worse if he were out there trying to defend this stuff on a regular basis. So he's being, what was the word? Cautious on press interviews. Yeah, no kidding. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. U.S. Senator Tim Scott is here. We'll have an in-depth conversation with him about a brand new book that he's written, America, A Redemption Story, plus news of the day. Senator Scott, straight ahead on The Guy Benson Show. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It is our happy hour on The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. 
3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday. The final hour, 5 to 6, is the happy hour. Sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is delicious and refreshing. Give it a shot if you haven't already. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can find out where they're sold as they expand, perhaps to your neck of the woods. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only. And our website here, the program, GuyBensonShow.com. Available to people of all ages, and we encourage you to check it out. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also get our podcast every day free of charge on demand. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. And here in the happy hour, we bring in one of the happiest warriors in Washington, D.C., U.S. Senator Tim Scott, Republican of South Carolina, who is out with a brand new book, America, A Redemption Story, Choosing Hope, Creating Unity. And Senator Scott, it is always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, guys. Good to be back with you. I hope you enjoyed your dining in South Carolina and specifically Charleston last time we talked. I absolutely did. Thank you for your help with all of that. That reservation, hard to get, but I know a guy, and it really worked out, so I appreciate that. (laughs) Senator, I want to talk about some of the news of the day, but I want to begin and really focus on this book, which I think is an important book because at the bottom of the cover it says, Choosing Hope, Creating Unity, and it really feels like we're in a place as a country where both of those concepts are a bit foreign, at least for a lot of people. And it's been that way for a while. There are a lot of Americans, I would say, especially younger Americans, who don't believe this is really a hopeful place for them anymore. And it is certainly not a unified place. And it's hard to sort of chart a path forward where you can imagine us coming back together because things are so polarized, so divided. I know you have tried to live this out and set a model in Washington, D.C., during your career, now you've written a book about your life and your philosophy and your outlook. What informed your decision to write this book and maybe the timing around this book at a moment where I feel like the country could use it, whether they're willing to listen or not, it's important to have it out there, at least from where I sit. Well, Guy, I do think that the the times in which we live are times of division and polarization in a way that we haven't seen in recent memory. The truth is that when you look back historically, we've been in much more divisive times in our nation's history. And without that perspective, sometimes it feels like there's no hope. But when you understand and appreciate the actual journey of America and you weave that story into your personal pain and, and promise, you find yourself understanding that, yes, it's hard but it will get better. I think about the fact that in, in the 1860s, we had a civil war, much more divided than we are today. The Jim Crow South in the 1930s, much more divided than we are today. The 1960s and civil rights legislation, much more divided than we are today. Even the Rodney King incident in 1992, much more divided than we are today. But what we've seen because of the American evolution, the American story that does not end, is more people coming together to make sure that there is a level playing field. And unfortunately today, the book America Redemption Story is more important than it used to be, because literally today we're asking ourselves about the Biden administration, someone who ran on being the great uniter. Why is division? It seems to be his trump card, and I literally mean pun intended. There seems to be too much division being pushed forward into the American psyche. I think there's no doubt about that, and it sounds like that influenced 
your decision to put yourself out there with this book, and you really do to some extent with some of the details that you share that we'll get into here in just a moment, but you ran through some of the historical examples of deeper divisions and perhaps more significant and serious and seemingly irreparable decisions in our past. And I think those are important to remember, important to reflect on, to put our current moment in perspective. On the other hand, there is a lot of people out there, I would venture to say, who would either forget that history that you laid out or are ignorant of it, don't even really know about it with any depth. And some of those people might say, okay, this doesn't really resonate with me. Other people might at least intellectually understand the point you're making, but that doesn't make the current moment feel much better to them. Oh, maybe it's been a little worse in the past, but it's still really bad now. And, you know, your focus on the word redemption as inextricable with America, at least that link in your mind, there are a lot of people in America today who seem to believe that this country is not a redemption story, and in fact it is irredeemable at its core on some level. What is your message to someone who might hold that, I would say, ahistorical view? It's certainly very cynical, and you come at this from a perspective of someone who I'd say is refreshingly not cynical, especially someone in your position. How would you try to engage someone who had that very different view of things? The, the, the foundational truth of America, which is a rock-solid foundation, is that, yes, America had sin. Our original sin was slavery. What did we do in response or reaction to our original sin? We fought a civil war where 600,000-plus American men died over the cause of freedom. Four percent of the American male population sacrificed their lives so that this country would remain one nation under God and indivisible. Some of the stories that I talk about in the book is my grandfather's life, 1921, born in the Deep South, a very rural part of South Carolina, Sally, South Carolina. He experienced incredible racism and discrimination, and yet he said to me as a little kid, never, ever become bitter, never be a victim. He told me I had a choice. I could be a victim or victorious. He lived long enough to see the arc of this universe bend towards justice, so much so that he continued to preach the message of hope and the message of unity, even though for most of his life he did not experience it. But he had faith in America's future because of the pain and the tragedy of its past. He believed the foundation we needed was going to be built on the shoulders of the greatest generation we'd ever seen, and he was right. Senator, we've had you on this show in the aftermath of some of the things that you have done and said where you experienced backlash or spasms, frankly, of bigotry from the other side of the aisle, whether it was your response to President Biden's speech, the State of the Union, whether it was your speech at the Republican convention. When you have your profile raised, and I think that you often step up to the plate and sort of live up to the moment, there are people who feel like because you're conservative and because you're a Republican, you're not really authentically fully black. And they come at you that way in a way that I find very disgusting. And I'm sure it's upsetting to you. You write in this book, America, a Redemption Story, that you define yourself by your faith, by your family, by your friends, not by your race. And I know that there are some identitarian people fixated on identity who would say, 
that is, and you fill in the blank with the epithet, that's a sellout mentality or that's privilege for him to set aside his race and focus on these other things. How do you combat that kind of mentality that I think is toxic but certainly has at least a foothold in our society right now? Well, Guy, one of the challenges of modern America is that the bigotry of the left is condoned by mass media. And so you walk away with this thought that it's okay if you discriminate against the right group of people. That is exactly the opposite story that I tell in my book, America Redemption Story. I literally tell the story of my personal evolution as it relates to interacting with people who did not respect the fact that I was different in high school, literally being bullied or abused by the language or the words chosen by those who hated the fact that I did not walk and toe the line. Good news for me, Guy, is that America, and frankly, the community that I came from, was more interested in teaching me how to think than what to think. Our left liberal elite want to teach us what to think and never how to think. Their process of indoctrination, it is so dangerous and so toxic to the American soul that we have to stand counter to what they're trying to do. I'd say this way, Guy. The young person in a marginalized community, whether it's a rural white person, an inner city black person, or someone in the Hispanic or Asian community, the one thing we should never tell them is if you step out of what we think you should do, you are ostracized. That is the message that the liberal elite are trying to send to minority kids throughout the country. They hate people who think for themselves. Groupthink is so corrosive on the left, and they target those of us who refuse to embrace their ideology. And that mm. means we are rejected because of our ideology. Yeah, sounds familiar to me. And I appreciate you saying that. And of course, I agree. Our guest is Senator Tim Scott, Republican South Carolina. His new book is America, A Redemption Story. More of that story and this conversation when we come back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Here on the Happy Hour on The Guy Benson Show, we are joined by Tim Scott, U.S. Senator from South Carolina, discussing his new book, America, A Redemption Story. I did not know about this car accident that you were in when you were younger, and it wasn't a fender bender. This was something really scary and serious. Talk about that. You write about it in your book, and how did it impact the trajectory of your life? Well, one of the more painful stories that led to my promise was the truth of my car accident. So Imagine, if you will, Guy, a 16-year-old driving down the road at 6.30 in the morning, 30-minute drive, just drop your mom off from work. You're sleepy because she woke you up right before you got in the car. And the next thing you know, at 70 miles an hour, you're driving east down on the interstate, and you fall asleep for about 15 seconds. You wake up in a panic. You slam the brakes and jerk the steering wheel, which causes the car not to, to, to skid, but to flip into un, oncoming traffic. Literally through both east east east, lay, east lanes and into the median, up in the air, I go through the windshield, holding onto the steering wheel, yelling for hope. That sounds like Jesus. Uh, coming back in the car, finishing this amazing ride, westbound, in a ditch, glass, my blood everywhere, and literally surviving that car accident changed the way I saw the world and changed the way I you, saw you myself. You thought you were going to die, right? You thought you were dead. I, 
Absolutely. I did. I yelled out, I'm dead, I'm dead. Uh, so it was a scary, scary place to be. But the law enforcement, one of the reasons why when you read my book, you, you see the chapter on honoring the blue, it's because of the amazing response of law enforcement in the midst of an accident back in 1982. They were so gracious, so kind, and so encouraging that my mother was going to be so happy I was alive. I did tell them, guy, you don't know my mama. She's going to kill me. And so literally, <laughs> I have such great respect for law enforcement. But that pain and miserable experience forged me into a different person, and it led me to understand that life was not about football or about me that service and faith became more ever-present and more important in my life because of that. Had it not been for that accident, I would not be in public service today. Yeah, you would have been pursuing a football career, and that kind of went up in smoke with this accident, put you on a different path. And I think the state of South Carolina, I would say the country, is better off for it. But at the time, you had no idea that that was going to be the case, and it was just a really horrible thing that happened to you that looking back, thank God you survived it was one of those inflection points in your life. Something else that you write about, and I know that politicians write memoirs all the time, all the time, and they talk about their experiences, and sometimes they want to frame their situation as sort of this scrappy underdog story because that suits them politically. But you still kind of airbrush certain things and perhaps – sweep certain details or painful memories under the rug or at least tweak them enough where it's still sort of this heroic narrative for the principal, the person writing the book. At some point, it seems like you had to make a decision to get pretty vulnerable and maybe uncomfortable with some of these anecdotes that you share, including this really heartbreaking story about when you and your mother and your family just separated from your father. And I can't imagine that is something that you like to dwell on or think about very often, given how it all went down, let alone share it with the whole country. But you've chosen to do that in this book, America, A Redemption Story. Was that hard for you? Why did you decide to tell that story? Guys, so often in life, you find yourself in heartbreaking situations, and then we see an airbrushing of your life as if hard times weren't that hard, and good times were even better. And one of the things I hope that we want in, in, in this country today is authenticity and sincerity. And I sincerely was heartbroken at seven years old, trying to figure out if I would give up Christmases and birthday presents, could I keep my family together? And the pain of that past, the misery of that experience shouldn't be sugarcoated. I think it is helpful for the American people to see that life is messy no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're doing, that pain and misery visit us all. And in my life, I learned over a painful seven years that I had to take responsibility for the pieces that were left, forging together a foundation to see a better way and a better future. And that's where I met my mentor, John Monese, a Chick-fil-A operator who really helped me understand that if you take responsibility for yourself, the best is yet to come. If you blame everybody and everything around you, you're probably going to sink into a place of depression and despondency that will not be in your best future's interest. And so life is messy. I do my best to tell the painful, miserable parts of my life 
so that others who may be there can find hope in their journey. You do a lot of talking and reflecting and almost preaching in a religious sense about the future and looking forward with that optimism, with that hope. And I know that you have something on your plate right now. You're up for re-election in South Carolina, widely expected to win in a romp. You never take anything for granted, obviously. But I would imagine everywhere that you go, because I've witnessed it personally, at least in a couple instances, you have people coming up to you expressing some interest in your political future beyond perhaps the U.S. Senate. 2024 looming, that kind of thing. I'm not asking you to make any sort of big announcement here, although you're welcome to if you want to. But how do you process those kinds of thoughts and considerations and appeals from people? I think one of the greatest blessings on earth is to know that the constituents or your bosses think you're doing a good job. That is a blessing beyond recognition, and I thank God when that happens to me. Second thing I would say is that most often most people want you to continue doing the good job that you are, and when they come to the conclusion that they want more, they'll ask for more. But for me, instead of thinking about titles or what's next, I have found great success and, more importantly, significance by investing myself wholly in the job at hand. And one of the reasons why when I wrote the book, America Redemption Story, I talk in the last chapter about where we will be in 2070, because I don't want us to get confused with election cycles. I want us to think about the country holistically in a far distant future so that we are responsible for sowing the seeds where others will have the harvest. I think that's well said. In the meantime, Senator, we've got to take a quick break. When we come back, I do want to get to a little bit of news of the day, no shortage of topics. Tim Scott, our guest, Republican of South Carolina in the United States Senate, will be right back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. U.S. Senator Tim Scott is our guest here on The Guy Benson Show. He's given us a lot of his time. We're grateful for that. His book that is out now is America, A Redemption Story, Choosing Hope, Creating Opportunity. Now, I do want to flash into the present and talk about a few things that have happened just in the last couple of days, Senator. The Senate passing over the weekend this huge tax and spend bill that the Democrats are calling inflation reduction that... Almost no one seems to actually believe that, including Bernie Sanders, who actually admitted it in a floor speech over the weekend. Your thoughts on the sales pitch that they're making to the American people and really the actual impact of this bill that they passed exactly along party lines with zero Republican support? Well, guy, one thing you can imagine is I can't tell you how frustrating it is to stay up overnight to see the country lose another $700 billion to the public sector or more uh, in pursuit of what? Inflation reduction? When, in fact, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, has said very clearly that the impact on inflation is negligible, which means between 0.1 up and 0.1 down, which sounds like to me no actual effect on inflation when Mm – God forbid Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz and Tim Scott find themselves on the same page that this bill does not impact inflation. That is the wrong direction to go. And so you see the newspapers and the headlines around the country talking about a a green energy plan. Terrible bill. I can't imagine something more dangerous than seeing three letters in my mailbox, IRS. 
And yeah. knowing that they had a 600% increase in their budget, hiring 87,000 new agents to once again target not millionaires and billionaires, but according to the Congressional Budget Office, the independent thinker, so to speak, they say the target will be on the backs of people making less than $200,000 a year. We literally, I voted against it, but they passed a bill that now empowers the IRS to target small business owners, family farmers, people of low to moderate income in pursuit of more than $300 billion to give tax subsidies to people making $300,000. It is so wrongheaded, wrong-directed. I am stunned that people can say something positive about that bill. Why do you think Democrats keep arguing, and what's your response when they say, as they have out loud, that it's not true? They're not going to affect middle class or working class people. It's just a Republican talking point, the massive doubling of the IRS and this huge number of new agents and, and you know, auditors. That's not going to impact people who are making less than four hundred or even $200,000 a year. They say that's not true. Uh, and and your response to that is what? And then the second point that they make, Senator, is, well, if you just are a law-abiding taxpayer, you've got nothing to worry about if the IRS comes knocking. What's the big deal? Well, that's funny. I, I, the, 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 that's just comical, <laughs> number one. Number two, I would say that the IRS hunts for tax revenue from the places where there's the least amount of resistance. That means if you are a millionaire and billionaire and you have – a, a, a law firm of lawyers defending your tax returns and having that debate, the IRS goes to the lowest hanging fruit. Where's the low hanging fruit? It's small business owners like the one I used to be, who is both the human resource department and the legal department, and I make the widgets too. That person can ill afford to have a whole stable full of lawyers just waiting to get out and, and, and attack back because of the tax code. So there's no doubt that the CBO's estimate of 90% of the revenue being generated under $200,000, those are the reasons why. The second thing I would tell you is that a corporate tax is a pass-through tax, meaning that the people who bear the burden are the employees of that corporation, the stockholders of that corporation, and the consumers who consume the goods at higher prices because that tax must be increased in order to see the tax being paid by the corporation that signs the check. If you read my book, America Redemption Story, one of the things you will find out without any question is there's a small business owner who had to do my quarterly 941s, who had to pay my corporate taxes, my local taxes, my state taxes, is that that burden can be job-destroying and investment-stopping that is a heavy burden to put on a very weak economy that is heading towards a recession. Senator Scott, you've been very generous with your time. Very quickly, your reaction to the Mar-a-Lago raid yesterday. Unprecedented, concerning, stunning, shocking. I was tweeting about this earlier. I can't think of anything more dangerous than a political FBI and we need to make sure, and I think we'll do that with our oversight authority as we start winning the elections coming in November. We're going to have to make sure that this FBI is apolitical. If you remember, Guy, just last week, 
Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, was before the Senate Judiciary Committee because of the way that they have poorly handled, in a very political way, political cases. That is very dangerous for the average citizen in our country when those in power and perhaps one of the most powerful people in the country becomes a target of an investigation. U.S. Senator Tim Scott, my guest. His book is America, A Redemption Story, available everywhere. It's good. I hope you check it out. Senator, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to next time. Thank you, Guy. God bless. If you missed any part of that conversation with Senator Tim Scott about his new book, America, A Redemption Story, and some of the big recent headlines that we've been talking about, you can go back and listen on our podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. The whole interview is there, as is the entire show on the podcast, free of charge, on demand, every day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, as promised, a review of last night, hot and humid, muggy evening in D.C., Lady Gaga in town, yours truly in the house. What do we think about it? Some politics got injected in there. Curious Christine has questions. That's all coming up. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show, Tuesday edition. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com is our website podcast. Is always free of charge to all of you on demand when the show is over. Last night, Nationals Park in Washington, D.C., Lady Gaga brought her Chromatica Ball Tour to America for the first time. She's been abroad. She played all over Europe. She was in Canada. This was her first show on this tour in the U.S., is my understanding. And at one point, she shouted out, what's up, America, and got a big roar from this absolutely adoring crowd. And it is a very interesting collection of characters who are hardcore Lady Gaga fans, let me tell you that. She also is just an immense talent with so many hits. So I knew probably 70% of the songs. Some were deep tracks from, I guess, the newest album that I hadn't really heard. But it was, as I expected, quite a spectacle. And some of it is weird, or at least very different, from a traditional concert experience. I think that's part of the brand, part of what she was going for, part of what her fans love about her. I enjoyed it. Look, the weather was just awful. No rain, but you almost were praying for rain, for some relief, or just a hint of a breeze somewhere. It just felt like you were standing in an oven. And we had a suite. We were invited to a suite, so we actually had an indoor space with air conditioning. And even when I would go in briefly to get a drink or to just cool off, you would cool down, walk right back out, and it's just like this wall would hit you. So we were just gross by the end of the night. There was no getting around it. But a lot of very happy, satisfied customers drenched in sweat walking out of the building after she was done. She played straight through. She had all these video components and pyrotechnics and the band. It wasn't just piped in pop music. There was a band performing, and then she did a lot of piano work herself. There was the main stage and then a secondary stage. So if you can picture sitting behind home plate at a baseball stadium looking out to center field, that's where the stage was, out in center field facing back toward the infield in the grandstand. 
And then there was a secondary stage right on second base where she made her way at one point through the crowd, then went up these stairs internally. There was a grand piano up there. And she performed quite a lot of the concert toward the middle from there. And I think what was so impressive about her as a performer is with the big, enormous pop music numbers, with all the dancing and all the frills and all the choreography and fireballs flying around, which you could feel. You could feel the heat. We were so far away from the stage, we could feel the heat. I could imagine how hot it must have been closer, especially given the temperature outside. But there was just this sensory overload. And she's belting out every song. But you could say maybe this is a lot of smoke and mirrors and it's a visual experience. Yes, she's singing, but is it a measure of musical talent? And I think there's probably a lot of people who would say the positions in which she was singing, the way she was dancing, absolutely underscore how talented she is. But I think it really became undeniable when it was just her and the piano and her voice. When she sang a number of different songs and... It was just terrific. If you're listening on the broadcast, we bumped in with part of the musical version of Born This Way, one of her biggest hits. She had, maybe my favorite part of the concert was, she had this intimate discussion with the audience where she was giving some of her thoughts on a few things, and then she played sort of like the piano version of an acoustic version of Born This Way, just her and the piano as people soaked it in and sang along, and then she transitioned that into the full-blown pop anthem. But I had never heard this spin on Born This Way before. I was able to get just a little bit of it that I caught on my phone. Here's cut 27 from last night. Huge cheers, sold-out crowd. If you're planning on seeing her on this tour, maybe just plug your ears, earmuffs for a second. And I'd also add, maybe not super kid-friendly. Just one thought on my part. But a couple spoilers. She opened with Bad Romance and then straight into Just Dance and Poker Face, just her original hits. So what a beginning to the show. Then she closed with Rain On Me, And her encore was Hold My Hand from the new Top Gun movie, which was awesome. Now, she might mix it up. I don't know if she's doing the same thing at each stop on the tour. And then a bunch of stuff in between. She did that number from A Star is Born. No Bradley Cooper. Some people were wondering, might he show up? It was just her. It was just really entertaining and fun. She is a performer It's very visual, but she also just has so much raw musical talent. And she's also classically trained on top of all of it. So I was really happy to be invited, thanks to my cousin Chris, who was able to make it happen. We did not buy our way into his suite. That would have been 
uh, a bit much uh, for our budget, but I'm glad I was able to go see her. She's someone that I kind of wanted to go see. Then here was an opportunity. It presented itself. I jumped at it, and we had a really good, albeit sweaty, time. Now, I was bracing for some politics. Lady Gaga is a leftist. I think that's not really a surprise, certainly on social issues. Her fan base definitely is very left-leaning. And you're in D.C., one of the most Democratic cities in the country. So unsurprisingly, you were going to get some of that, and there was going to be a big reaction to it, given the milieu inside that stadium and the group of people who would self-select to go to a Lady Gaga concert. She had one little shout-out about gay marriage that got some cheers. She did a tribute on COVID and how difficult COVID has been and many people who were lost. That was nice, not really political at all. She did get into abortion at one point and was kind of vague about it, but clearly came down, unsurprisingly, again, on one side. And at one point, the camera zoomed in on someone in the front row wearing a shirt that was, shall we say, very disparaging of the Supreme Court, profanely disparaging, I think is maybe the better way to describe that. And that got a very big cheer from the D.C. Gaga crowd. And she had a few other comments about that. And for the most part, the crowd was very much with her. Not everyone, though. I'm not the type of person who's so triggered that someone disagrees with me, especially some you know big Hollywood entertainer that I'm going to walk out or something like that. But I stood there politely and quietly with my arms crossed as she had her say. She has a right to have her say. It's her platform. It's a free country. And maybe a few of the references that she made I would be more open to, more sympathetic to. But overall, the message as a pro-lifer I disagreed with. And I did look around amid the cheering and that kind of thing. I just looked around the stadium And there, noticeably, were people not reacting. Men, women, just silently standing, listening, taking it in, and not supporting the message because not everyone agrees. She didn't dwell on it forever, which was fine. And I know some of the people that we were in this box with, we didn't know them. A lot of them turned out to be right-leaning just by coincidence. And they said, well, we didn't love that, but look, we're here for Lady Gaga and it's fine. And that's how the evening proceeded. So it was not just like clubbing us over the head with politics all night long. It was pretty limited. All right, Christine, we have a few minutes left here in the segment. I hope I've painted a picture here. Do you have any more questions? Because I know you were extremely curious earlier when we spoke. Boy, did you paint a picture. I mean, you probably answered almost all of my questions I was going to ask you about if she said anything politically and was the crowd, you know, cheering or did they turn on her? Did anybody recognize you? Not that I know of. No one came up to me or anything. And that's probably not a massive crossover with the Guy Benson show audience in that stadium. But you never know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't think I got noticed. And that's fine. It was just a night out with Adam and some friends and my cousin. And we had a good time. Was it hard, because you obviously knew of the breaking news last night, was it hard to fully be in the Gaga, you know, immerse yourself in Gaga, knowing that there was breaking news going on last night? Not really. We were actually in the Anheuser-Busch suite, so there was beer. So I had some Bud Light, wanted to enjoy the moment. I knew that the news would still be there when I got home. We didn't have great service anyway, so I just saw the news 
before we went to the stadium. I retweeted a few things and then put it on hold and then got home later and went back sort of into news cycle mode. But I had a couple hours off, courtesy of Lady Gaga. Very cool experience. And if you're a fan of hers, obviously you're going to like this tour. You're going to like this show. And even if you're not a fan of hers, you can't really doubt the intensity of her star power and her talent, even if her persona and her outfits are a little outrageous to you. Anyway, good stuff. We got to run back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show at the same time. Same exact place. Hope to talk to you then. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.